Hello to my friends and my neighbors, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex with Chris Kaufman. I'm Chris Kaufman, and today I'm talking with professor of political science at Brown University, David Scarbeck. David's research focuses on the structure and evolution of extra-legal governance institutions. He's the author of The Social Order of the Underworld, How Prison Gangs Govern the American Penal System, as well as his newer book, The Puzzle of Prison Order, Why Life Behind Bars Varies Around the World. David and I talk about what life looks like and how order is kept, or if it is kept at all, in California prisons, in Latin American prisons, women's prisons, Nordic prisons, and even a Civil War POW camp. This is my conversation with David Scarbeck. Today we're talking about your more recent book, The Puzzle of Prison Order, Why Life Behind Bars Varies Around the World. Can you just talk a little bit about what that book is about, what your thesis is there, and what you were hoping to do? So the basic premise of the book is to recognize the fact or to make the argument that either by definition or practice, prisons everywhere share some really important fundamental characteristics. They don't randomly bring people into them. There's a selection effect. They, they house people who are charged with or convicted of crimes. There's a selection bias in that they tend to incarcerate people who come disproportionately from disadvantaged socioeconomic communities. While incarcerated people don't typically choose who they can interact with, and there are no exit options. And that those basic characteristics, which are crucial to the day-to-day life of prisons, um, is the same wherever we look at places of incarceration. Nevertheless, there's a substantial variation in the informal life of prisons. In some places, prisoners work collectively with great effect to exert influence on the everyday life of prisons. In other places, there's very little solidarity. Prisoners don't exert a sort of concerted collective effort. Likewise, in some places, prisoners rely on very simple decentralized ways of enforcing social order. They use norms, gossip, ostracism, In other places, uh, they invest in centralized groups like racially segregated prison gangs. And so the puzzle that I'm trying to explain in the book is if prisons do share such fundamental, important characteristics like I mentioned, then why is the informal life in prison so different? So that's sort of the goal of the book is to describe and try to explain some of the vast variation that we see in prisons when we look around the world and through time. And just right off the bat, something that must be striking to people is even just talking about, you know, differences in prison order probably strikes people who haven't looked into this as odd, like the guards provide the prison order, the probably most people are picturing, you know, the last movie they saw about like an American prison or something. And there really is like a shocking amount of diversity in the prisons you survey in the book. So can you just can you just say a little bit about like, in what sense do gangs provide order? That also probably seems really counterintuitive to people. Gangs are are violent. They they make things worse. And I uh, a mutual friend of ours described your last book as being about prison gangs and David's in favor of them, but he doesn't say it outright. (laughs) (laughs) So there is a vast amount of informal order that exists in prison. So in the Western world, in the United States, we typically you know, see and think of prisons as very controlled places. Um, but even in places in the United States, prisoners have far more autonomy um, than we typically imagine. And when you step away from the sort of Western North American context, it turns out that in many places, such as in Latin America, across Latin America, in fact, 
Um, prisoners have a tremendous amount of autonomy and control in their daily lives. When there are prison staff in prisons, they're often overwhelmed or outnumbered by prisoners more than 100 to 1. They don't exert very much control in the operation of life um, inside a prison housing area. Um, in some places, there are no guards within the prisons at all in Latin America. So that's not the case of all prisons, but in a large region in Latin America, that's not untypical. That's not unusual to see. On the question of gangs, uh, in California, my first book, The Social Order of the Underworld, I, I try to understand why gangs are so important, even dominant in California prisons today, but didn't exist for more than 100 years in that same prison system. And so my argument you know, essentially is that in large prison populations that are very diverse, where the quality of governance provided by officials is far less than what they want, prisoners often turn to gangs um, to enforce some stability, to enforce some order. Um, they're not forces for good in general, uh, but they have incentives and they have the tools and the organizational capacity to try to reduce conflict. Uh, they do that by creating rules that they require other prisoners to read and to follow. They do that with the threats and the use of violence to punish people who violate rules. Uh, and they do that through sort of collective mechanisms of responsibility, what, what, I, what in the book I call a mutual responsibility system, which is that within different groups, which are overwhelmingly uh, based on race and ethnic lines, um, all members within a group are responsible for any particular group member's actions and obligations. So if one member of a group incurs a drug debt to a different group or a different gang, everyone in that gang is responsible for its repayment. And in that way, by organizing the community and the society along these groups, it produces a tremendous amount of in-group pressure to regulate group member behaviors to, to ease or facilitate interactions with other groups or across groups. So in some of those ways, gangs um, attempt to reduce the volatility and the uncertainty that exists in many prison systems. So if I go to prison and I'm white, presumably I'm just obligated to join a white racially segregated prison gang and I screw up, it falls on them. So they have an incentive to knock me around and keep me in line to keep things smooth and not attract undue attention from guards. Like you talk about rules about approved fights like they you know, we have this image from movies, maybe that there's just brawls breaking out all the time. And I don't know, you know, just because the rules are written down doesn't mean they're not being violated. That's probably part of the reason they're being written down is because they are being violated. But the gang leadership does not want unapproved fights going on. They set up like duels or boxing matches or something like that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, at least speaking to the case of California is the the gangs do a lot to regulate and control when violence is, is used. And one of the main, you know, there's sort of two main reasons for that that are tightly interrelated. The first is that, um, you know, sort of spontaneous acts of violence, especially across racial or ethnic lines um, in California is very often instantly going to lead to a large scale riot across those different racial and ethnic groups. Um, that's a serious um, bad outcome that gangs wish to avoid if possible. Related to that, though, is that often after large-scale disruptions, prison officials uh, implement a lockdown and uh, limit movement around prisons, eliminate yard time. And as a result of that, uh, the illicit economy is, is greatly suppressed. It, 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 the, the illegal activity that might be taking place in a prison yard can't take place anymore. And often that means that gangs uh, the profit lines of gangs takes a big hit. So they have a sort of material uh, self-interest to prevent large-scale or spontaneous acts of violence. You talk about a lot of different 
types of prison. And you mentioned the Latin American examples and specifically the Bolivian prison, uh, San Pedro. That That's another part of the, there's a lot of like jaw-dropping moments, I think, probably for people who aren't um, prison academics. What what broadly does life in San Pedro look like? Certainly desperate poverty. Uh, Latin American prisons are very poor. They're overcrowded. Uh, they're places that lack basic human rights, like healthcare, food, access to clean water. Uh, they don't have access to substantial educational, vocational training, uh, and very little or no access to healthcare. Um, that's true across Latin America. It's certainly true at Bolivia's San Pedro prison. San Pedro prison doesn't have a guard presence on the inside. Prison staff regulate entry and exit from the facility. But other than that, they've essentially um, left life inside the prison to prisoners to organize around and to um, determine what the day-to-day is like in San Pedro prison. So prisoners there have to buy or rent their own place to sleep or their own prison cell. There's an, uh, an economy that operates within the prison that is far more important than any of the food or water or clothes that prison officials provide. Um, and prisoners invest in a variety of different ways in small groups that are fairly functionally specific, but seek out ways to increase supply to needed resources, to administer the sort of day-to-day affairs of a prison, and to govern social and economic life. So it's, it's very much a situation where uh, prisoners who are assess- assisted by uh, visits from friends and family, um, but overwhelmingly prisoners, um, are left to construct what their period of incarceration is actually going to look like. So the prison officials provide some very minimal amenities to the prison, like electricity, running water, a couple meals a day of essentially gruel, a non-nutritious gruel, and maybe a pair of clothes and a blanket. But other than that, all of the, I don't know if the, uh, the prisoners are allowed to bring in their own, their own supplies, their own property, but I think my impression is, is that most of what goes on comes from outside visits and you're, you're visits from friends and family, and they are allowed to just give you stuff to bring into the prison, and that's not prohibited? or Yeah, that's exactly right. And this isn't unique to San Pedro. This is true across most Latin American prison systems, that the majority, depending on the study, usually the majority of prisoners receive food, clothing, health care from family members and friends on the outside who visit the prison and bring into the prison um, valuable resources. So the the prison systems across Latin America have sort of outsourced daily maintenance of prisoners either to themselves or to people on the outside, people who are often already um, living very difficult and impoverished lives uh, who then have to bring food and other needed things into the prison. Zooming out a little bit, you talk about like the governance thesis or the governance theory is kind of your explanatory framework for, for you know, showing why order varies across prison populations. So I guess two questions, you know, why does the San Pedro system look as different as it does based on the governance framework or the governance theory? And uh, and and specifically, do um, do gangs play a big role? So, you know, the basic, you know, sort of two main arguments in the book, the first one having to do with San Pedro is that um, if officials provide a lot of resources if they have very competent administration of the sort of daily operation of the prison, and if they govern the prison, they govern the social relationships among prisoners well, then there's not a lot of reason for prisoners themselves to invest their time, their energy, their resources into reproducing or replicating those efforts by prison officials. Because they're already working. Because they're already working. That's right. 
But when you look at a place like San Pedro, where officials don't provide the resources that are needed, they're not inside running the prison, and they're not even present to do any of the governing amongst prisoners, then that means there's this gap in the demand that prisoners have for governance institutions. And so it's in that situation, it's in that setting when prisoners, not necessarily, but very often, might decide to produce their own extra legal governance institutions, institutions that are outside or beyond the scope of the legal system. And so in uh, San Pedro prison, that's primarily um, uh, not driven by gangs. It's driven uh, by prisoners acting in a different capacity. But in other prisons, we do see gangs forming to provide that governance that prison officials lack. So in San Pedro, gangs do not play a huge role. Yeah, gang, gangs are not necessarily the dominant source of, of governance or control or domination within the prison system. You mentioned more like functionally specific organizations. Yeah, I mean, so there are housing committees in San Pedro. There's sort of seven or eight distinct housing units, and there are there's a committee. It's... Um, um, you know, filled by people who live in the housing uh, of the prison, and they're they're elected by other residents, and they're there to make sure that that housing section is run in a way that's pretty desirable. So it means that they're repairing the facility, they're organizing sports events, they're keeping a record of who owns which cells. For example, that's one example of a, of a functionally specific. Um, organization within the prison. Yeah, you talk about property titles and require. You know, they have they have contracts and require witnesses to to sell property within the prison. Yeah, and, and you know, this is all pretty basic, straightforward stuff. We just don't typically expect the prisoners themselves to be doing it. Another example of a functionally specific service that prisoners provide is that uh, there's a San Pedro Parents Association. Uh, as in many places in Latin America, in Bolivia children under the age of eight are legally allowed to live with an incarcerated family member. Um, in practice, um, children over the age of eight are, are typically allowed to still uh, reside within prisons uh, with a parent. Um, and but spouses as well? Spouses as well. So depending on the estimates and the time of year, anywhere from 200 to 400 children live inside San Pedro prison. And in order to care for this especially vulnerable population, they've created a sort of parents association. It organizes uh, educational activities, recreational activities, and they have rules that they require other prisoners to follow as well with respect to the children. For example, one rule they have is that you're not allowed to fight in the presence of children. And so former prisoners who I've spoken to have said that in practice, this is actually a rule that's followed. And he, he recounted a story about uh, two, two people who were fighting and the, the, some kids came into the area and they stopped and then the kid left and they returned to fighting. So uh, this is a very functionally specific uh, form of governance. It's driven by people who have the most incentive and maybe the best information available to care for uh, the kids. Um, and that's just, that's just one of many different types, a very diverse set of uh, ways in which they sort of respond in this very difficult situation uh, to improve life on the margin. The presence of kids and spouses and families in the prison struck me as you talk a lot about women's prisons, and I was just curious, you know, what the role of are pretty much all prisons sexually segregated? Um, are there any counterexamples to that? This this was this struck me as at least a, a minor counterexample. What, what's it? Are there similar um, norms in place for the protection of spouses in a situation like this? It seems like not just the children, but the wives, presumably wives of the prisoners in there would be super vulnerable. Yeah, I don't ha I don't know specifically very much about that. But yeah, I mean, I would suspect that you know, there is uh, keen attention to how women are treated 
uh, especially spouses, uh, while, while incarcerated there. Going over maybe to women's prisons, unlike men's prisons, have apparently not changed in their governance structure over the last 50 or so years in, in the way that men's prisons have. Um, why is that? Yeah, it's striking. So if you if you look at women's studies of women's prisons in California going back to the 1960s, the way that they describe the social the social structure of women's prisons is remarkably stable. It, you know, reading accounts from the 60s and 70s sounds a lot like an account that you might read with, within the last five or ten years. And I think that's the case because the quality of governance that prison officials provided, it hasn't changed very much over that time period. It's, it's, it's remained fairly constant. In addition, uh, the size of the women's prison population, it's gone up, but it's always remained pretty, pretty low. It's a pretty small prison population. Even at its peak, there was only a few thousand women incarcerated in California prisons. That number's fallen dramatically now. And so the basic argument of the book is that when prison populations are small, norms work really well. People know others' reputations. People care about their social status and their standing in the community. So they conform more easily and more quickly to what the accepted norms of behavior are. Another advantage in small communities of relying on norms is that, one, they don't require a lot of resources, a lot of physical resources to, um, to, to enforce. And second, they don't require a lot of collective action to enforce norms. Individuals can either choose to follow what's considered acceptable behavior or not, and people can either choose to punish deviations from norms or not. Finally, the punishment under these reputation-based mechanisms are all, in a material sense, fairly cheap. Gossiping about someone is very cheap. And in fact, in a small, closed environment like a prison, gossip and words can be extremely hurtful. And the women that I quote in my book, they basically describe the fact that when you're already isolated from society through incarceration, to be isolated through gossip and ostracism within the prison is doubly painful, even more painful. And so as a result, norms can sort of exert a substantial influence on people's behaviors. It's very cheap to enforce norms, uh, so they work well. And so my argument is that women's social structures in prison hasn't changed dramatically over the last 50 or 60 years because they've always been able to rely at pretty low cost and in a pretty effective way on these norm-based, reputation-based governance mechanisms. Would your theory predict that if, for some reason, women's prisons were to balloon in size to population levels similar to men's prisons, that that would start to change? Yeah, I think that's exactly right, uh, Chris. I think that's exactly the prediction, which is that if they experience the substantial increase in the size of the prison population and there is no counteracting change in the quality of governance that officials provide, then those norms are going to become less effective. In larger prison populations, it's more difficult to know uh, other people's relative social standing. It's difficult to know other people's reputation. So the importance of maintaining a good reputation are actually far less important in large prison populations. Likewise, when you gossip about somebody, they can find a different peer group who don't hear the gossip, who don't know the gossip. Um, ostracism from one community doesn't mean that you'll be ostracized from all prisoners. So in large prison populations, 
all of the things that made norms really effective at producing social order start to break down. They are not effective in encouraging good behavior. The punishments are not as severe. And as a result, they're, they're less effective. In the context of men's prisons, which in a previous period relied on norm-based governance, when we saw ramping up of the size of the prison population, these norms broke down. And when they broke down, we saw a, a period of substantial violence within prisons, an increase in violent assaults, an increase in rioting. And it was in that, that violence was an indication. It was a reflection of the fact that the norms were failing to govern like they had previously. And in the face of that violence and instability, prisoners then turned from decentralized to more centralized institutions. And in this particular case, uh, created some of the very first uh, prison gangs in existence in the United States. And this is essentially on the heels of more mass incarceration following the war on drugs? Um, this was, in, in a way, before mass incarceration. It, we're talking in the late 50s, the 1960s. Um, the prison population was growing in California then for a variety of different reasons, in part simply because the size of the population in California was growing. Um, okay. The, the, the drug war. And the, and, and the prisons weren't growing to, you know, to match them. No, they weren't. They weren't growing in sufficient speed to ensure that prison populations were kept in small uh, communities. That's right. The prison boom that happens in the early 1980s that that we typically refer to as mass incarceration, it did see an increase in uh, the number of prisons that were built in California, but not uh, again outpaced substantially by just the simple growth of the prison population. At the at, at the height of of incarceration in California, the typical prison held about 5,000 people. So this is a very large community, a very large population. You talk uh, a few times in your book about almost like, a, you know, each chapter sometimes reads like a journal article in some ways, like you talk, you talk very explicitly about, you know, strengths and weaknesses and where the evidence could be stronger and what you might, you know, opportunities for future research. One that occurred to me because rapidly increasing prison population sounds like a fruitful area of study to to test some of these predictions. I wonder if you looked at, you know, post-communization prison populations where all of a sudden I imagine the prison population of the Soviet Union and, and East European countries probably started to balloon with political prisoners at a certain point might be a, a, a way to see, you know, what what did prison culture look like and how did it change, you know, pre, pre and post communization? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great project. There are people working on sort of post-Soviet prisons. Um, I don't know that region very well. I've not written about it. I mean, knowing something about the switch between more autocratic and less autocratic regimes would be very interesting. Um, understanding there's, there's a there's a pretty substantial literature on the gulags and the sort of um, the the criminal rules and the criminal orders that emerged there. Um, so, but that 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 is certainly a very interesting region that I think is still underexplored. Another, which is very difficult to get any evidence on, would be looking at more Asian prisons and particularly Chinese prison systems to understand. Um, we don't even know how many people are housed in Chinese prisons, for example. They have secret prisons. And knowing what life in those prisons of, it would, would, would extend more fully uh, what I think are is, is the sort of scope of incarceration. So there's a sort of big missing piece in our understanding of what the scope of pr places of punishment can actually look like. Are there uh, prisons that you studied that didn't quite make it into the book? And are there particular prisons that you, you know, what, if you could, if you could add one or two more, 
like general prison populations that would add the most to your to your thesis and the project of this book, what do you think would be the most helpful? Uh, so that's a good question. Um, I definitely, you know, read about and, and learned about prisons that didn't go into the book, partly because in doing this sort of comparative case study work, it's important that you select cases based on variation and what you think are the explanatory variables. And a lot of the studies that I looked at, either one, weren't specifically about the social order or governance in a way that um, was fruitful to include. And then second, um, they didn't vary in ways that were useful for testing the theoretical framework uh, that I'm looking at. In terms of looking at uh, sort of what would be other prisons that I think would be useful is there's an emerging literature on prisons in Africa that's very interesting. Uh, as mentioned, I think that um, more focus on, on prisons in Asia um, would probably uh, uh, provide a lot of insight. Um, some of these places are places that are desperately poor. Um, others are places where uh, there's an, uh, an autocratic control in the country that allows officials to use force that wouldn't be allowed, uh, at least uh, in, in a typical setting, in the United States. And so I, th I think those sorts of studies would probably tell us a lot more about, um, about what drives the informal life of prisons. What about uh, wealthier East Asian countries like Singapore and Japan and South Korea. I mean, I'm in Taiwan, I imagine there's more readily available. I was surprised just just Googling around a little bit uh, before this interview. I, you know, had some predisposition that like Japanese prisons, for instance, might resemble more like you talk about Nordic prisons as being, mm -hmm. you know, very, very structured or well, not necessarily very structured, but but providing high quality governance and resources or something. It didn't didn't seem from a very brief overview that Japanese prisons have that reputation. Yeah, no, I mean, so you know, it, it took me more than five years to do the book. And I think, you know, at some point there was a period of exhaustion where I just said, well, look, if I'm of ever going to finish this, we need to just like stop at some point. Um, but there's uh, just I mean, there's so many dissertation ideas or book projects possible here. Um, again, looking at all of the regions that I didn't even come close to looking at would be very interesting out of sample test. Um, I have a chapter on Civil War era prisoner of war camps, and I looked at one particular one. But the records, the historical record is actually very good. And there were there's very interesting variation in POW camps in the north and in the south and that change over the period of the war. And yes, multiple dissertations or books could be written on that alone. So I think it's really a rich area. I think uh, a grad student could um, go and sample, as you suggest, perhaps, you know, a, a survey, a, you know, a collection of, of, of Asian countries and their prison systems. And I think that would be, you know, a fascinating uh, complement to, to the work that I've done. So you talk about the um, Civil War prison camp Andersonville, which is a crazy chapter, it's not just like a really interesting area of study. It's just from a purely human interest standpoint. I mean, every chapter feels like it could be, you know, the academic background for a screenplay or something like that. <laughs> like, it's just so interesting and uh, hor horrific. And prisoner of war camps are, you know, have one thing, presumably, that most prisons don't have, which is a prison population that is not primarily criminals and not even primarily, you know, low. So I mean, probably mostly lower socioeconomic status. I imagine soldiers tend to disproportionately come from there, but it's not necessarily like the underclass, the criminal underclass. And um, how, how does that, you would think that would affect it positively. And you talk about that in the Andersonville example is like pretty much an example of things going as badly as they could go. 
Yeah, Andersonville is a horrific example. As mentioned, it it was an operation for about the last 14 months of the American Civil War. It's often used as a case study in failure because nothing at all went right with this prison. And, you know, I was curious to find cases where these extra legal governance institutions fail. There's a famous article by uh, R.A. Radford called The Economic Organization of a POW Camp. Uh, It came out in 1945. It's based on the author's firsthand experience uh, of incarceration. And it's a fascinating article because it shows how markets can emerge, how money can emerge within the prisoner community. It shows how arbitration can take place across different marketplaces. And it's really a fascinating study. And Anderson is the opposite of that. There are no markets. There are no resources. There's no arbitrage. It's essentially an open field with a fence around it. It started receiving prisoners before it was done being built. If you look at the historical record, uh, the military officers in charge of Andersonville were frantic from before their first uh, captives arrived because they had no resources, they had no food, they had no manpower. And essentially what you see is this camp in operation for about 14 months and increasing you know, train loads by the day, growing in population, starving and dying at an incredibly high rate. It was the POW camp in the Civil War with the highest fatality rate, about 30,000, excuse me, 30% of prisoners died while incarcerated there. So this far outstrips most POW camps. In the North, Elmira comes close in the low 20s for fatality rate. Uh, But no, Hendersonville was was a a horrible um, failure and lots of people died there. um, Even the guards uh, had a high fatality rate, right? The guards themselves were also on very meager rations. Uh, did not have a barracks. The the Andersonville didn't have a working sewage system. It didn't have access to clean water. It didn't have barracks. It didn't have a supply chain. It did have a, 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 a an area for um, um, a hospital area, uh, but it was woefully under-resourced and too small and overwhelmed at all points. And the, the guards themselves, yes, had a very high fatality rate because they were, you know, you know, scratching together food with the hope of staying alive as well. On the face of it, this is everything a prison population would need to want to put time and resources and effort into providing their own governance structures. Uh, But this didn't happen. So what are some of the factors that made it not in their interest or just made them fail at doing it? Yeah. So, I mean, that's a really interesting question. And so, I mean, in some ways, the San Pedro prison is very similar to the Andersonville prison in that there was no guard presence on the inside. Um, There was not a source of high quality official governance providing resources or administration or governance. Um, But in the case of Andersonville, I think they descended into such a horrible situation for a few different reasons. Uh, The first is that while San Pedro prisoners had access to economic resources through visits from friends and family, captives at Andersonville did not. They were um, enemy combatants in a foreign land far away from friends and family. And those people probably didn't even know where uh, their loved ones were incarcerated and in captivity. So there's no lifeline to resources on the outside. Likewise, um, any of the natural resources that existed within the camp when it was initially formed, they were very quickly uh, depleted and emptied by prisoners who would, you know, use wood and plants and other things uh, for subsistence or fires. So very soon it was simply just a dirt field. There's no economic resources available to them. So because of the lack of opportunities for economic exchange, there was no need to invest in institutions to facilitate 
economic exchange. There was also a sort of long-run problem within the facility, which is that um, prisoners often believe, falsely as it turns out, that there would soon be a resumption of prisoner exchanges between the North and the South. This was politically a very controversial topic. Some people believe that these prisoner exchanges simply allowed the war to go on and on and on, and so maybe we should stop doing them. But one of the results of that, and we can see it in the diaries of prisoners at Andersonville, is that many men felt <clears throat> like they were going to be released soon, maybe within a few days, maybe next week. And that belief that their time in the facility was actually fairly short, that uncertainty meant that they weren't thinking in the long term. They weren't thinking, we're going to be here for months. Let's invest in institutions to alleviate some of this um, uh, poverty that we're facing. It also meant that they were less likely to collectively work to revolt or rebel or escape uh, because doing so would risk their lives. And again, falsely, many people believed that they were going to be released soon. So I think a combination of just simply no access to economic resources and a very short time horizon meant that they you know, didn't have the incentives to try to make something better of what, what they did have, what was available. I wish I knew more about it, but um, my grandfather was a POW. I was curious what you were mentioning the the article by the person 1945, so presumably mm-hmm. World War II POW camp. Where was he imprisoned? I'd have to look up the article. I don't recall off the top of my head. Uh, my my grandfather was in the in the Philippines. He was in the Bataan Death March. It wasn't his favorite topic, you know, but he spent most of the war imprisoned. Um, in the Philippines, and just just anecdotally from hearing him talk about it occasionally, and and I interviewed him about it at one point. It sounds probably closer to Andersonville, and I'm and now I'm thinking I'm re- recalling it in terms of these factors that maybe made them fail. Like obviously they had no access to outside visitors. My grandmother presumed him dead, more or less, so they didn't have anyone visiting them. I know the guards were strict enough that they were probably thwarting attempts at anything like what you're talking about. And I know he recounted a a story where I believe he accidentally killed a fellow prisoner in a fight over some bread. So there probably wasn't a lot of camaraderie and there were severe punishments on other prisoners for prisoners that, you know, attempted to escape or something like that. I mean, that sounds, yeah, pretty horrific. The the interesting thing about this particular article that I mentioned is that each prisoner received essentially a care package from the Red Cross on a regular basis. It included food, things like chocolate, cigarettes. So there was this outside source of economic resources in a way similar to those seen in San Pedro. Um, and, and if it weren't for that, it's not obvious that there would be the sort of an emerging market story uh, within that particular facility. You know, again, you know, there's like a ripe opportunity for a grad student to write a paper or a dissertation on this stuff because there are historians of war who have documented so much about different POW camps, different regions, different time periods, different wars. There's a lot of really interesting variation there. And for the most part, they've not been as interested in the sort of social science institutional style questions. So I think there's actually a ton of historical material there just sort of waiting for an economist or a political scientist to sort of dig into uh, and, and, and work on. And there's a lot of like detailed um, firsthand accounts. I, I know just for, from my grandfather in particular, uh, a condition, and he put this off for decades, but a condition of him getting certain benefits from the military was him submitting essentially a first-person narrative account of his experience. Hmm. So 
he had to submit a couple pages in writing of what his experience was like there to get certain kinds of, I don't know, trauma pay or something like that. So if that was his requirement, I'm sure there was there's been thousands of prison POW prisoners who have written a couple pages of firsthand. It's you know, it's that's a really ripe historical uh, opportunity if if those are those kinds of resources are available to researchers. I don't know. Yeah, but. I mean, that would be invaluable. And I mean, I'm looking at my bookshelf. I've got maybe two dozen prisoner of war books that have been published. I mean, there's there's a substantial existing literature right there. So, yeah, yeah I, th- I think it's really a, a, a sort of ripe area for um, some enterprising uh, student or faculty member to jump onto. So backing up a little bit, you talk about prison norms existing in all of these prisons, more or less, and prisoners codes. And there there seems to be some overlap in in. Obviously, there's diversity among the prisons, and that's what your book's about. But there there are some commonalities in the norms and kind of codes of conduct that prisoners follow. What are some of the most common, you know, unchanging norms that you see across pretty much every prison system? Yeah, that, that's a good observation. I think, that, I think that's right. I think that there's some things that are fairly constant across the prisons that I've looked at. Um, there's a lot of regulation of space, noise, and smells associated with sleeping, bathroom use. Like people are trying to regulate how everybody's behavior affects everyone else in environments that are often overcrowded and often lack a lot of uh, privacy. So there's typically always norms about sort of cleanliness and things like that. There is overwhelmingly a dislike of uh, people convicted of sex crimes. They're overwhelmingly placed at the bottom of the social hierarchy. In some places like California, they are not tolerated. They're essentially assaulted until the the prisoner requests uh, removal to a different housing area. Uh, Those are two very important commons. I I think another is a strong dislike of, of thieves. People who violate someone's property rights steal from different people. Um, again, most prisons are places. People who are stealing, sorry, you mean people who are stealing amongst other prisoners, not people yeah. who are convicted of theft. Yeah, no, that's right. I think stealing from people in prison is, is overwhelmingly seen as very bad behavior. What, you know, so I, I think sort of what, what people who are incarcerated want doesn't change so much as the way that they bring about enforcement of those things. So the way that People organize in California prisons today is very different from the past, but the goals of the organization, the, the goals of enforcement are in some ways, you know, very similar to what they looked like in the 1940s or 1950s. Is uh, another one seems to be snitches or people informants on on other prisoners, or, or maybe maybe it's just a general prohibition on kind of un- underhanded violations of like in-group prisoner solidarity. Yeah, you know, so the, there's a sort of yeah strong no snitching code that is almost always voiced and supported across prisons. There's often lots of snitching that happens across these same prisons. So there's some debate about um, whether people really think you shouldn't snitch or under which situations is acceptable to inform officials. So I've heard prisoners talk about it being acceptable if somebody's going to be subject to serious violence or somebody who doesn't deserve, in, for whatever reason, serious violence is going to be harmed, that then you know, informing officials in that case is fine. Um, but there's certainly norms against informing. People are punished or shamed for informing, and people who inform actively seek to prevent others from knowing that they've been informed. And that seems true across a wide range of, of different facilities. 
It makes sense to me that it would be simultaneously a norm that people don't want broken, but also a behavior that is constantly engaged in. One reason for having, you know, an official norm is that there is some tendency to break. If there was no temptation to violate the norm, we probably wouldn't hear about it. I mean, which makes it seem like most of the norms you talked you you just mentioned have to do with some prisoners how their behavior affects other prisoners. The one that didn't really have that, or maybe it does in a way I'm not seeing, is this strong um, distaste for sex offenders. That is, is that one more just a kind of a, a deep-seated moralistic norm? Because I imagine that they, the prisoners go in there and it's not like, unless there's a concern that, that the, from the other prisoners that they're going to be sexually victimized or something. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's a good observation, which is that that is one that's not obviously directly harming other uh, incarcerated people. Um, it does seem to come in part from a, a, a sort of disgust of the act. Yeah, that, that seems to be simply a, a sort of preference or belief or value-based motivation. Even the prison populations that where they don't, you know, they're not violent as violent towards sex offenders in, we haven't talked about the Nordic prisons, which are relatively nice, but they ostracize them, like ostracize Actually, the only the only place this didn't come up. Tell me, tell me if I'm wrong. I'm sure it doesn't come up in the POW camp because they're not they're not essentially criminals. But in the women's prisons, there wasn't there was even a taboo against asking people what they're in for or finding out those things. And there wasn't so much ostracism against sex offenders. Yeah, that, that's right. I, I think that in the women's prisons in California, there's never been a sort of systematic attempt or desire to learn why people were incarcerated, what their past history is, uh, is, and then to sort of place them in the social community as a result of that. The only possible exception is women who, who killed their child are, are sometimes especially seen as you know, people to not affiliate with. But no, it's far, far less important um, in women's prisons. Is that, again, because they're small enough that they can rely on the like, direct day-to-day behavior of the prisoners rather than needing to like, dig into their past, like the men, like the prison gangs? Have to? Yeah, that's. I'm sure that's definitely part of it. it. You know, in the in the men's prisons, because each member of the group is responsible for any particular member, then incorporating people who have low social standing or a bad reputation, the group as a whole takes a hit from that. In women's prisons, where it's more based on an individual's reputation and behavior, that sort of contamination, or or, or you know, to to use a phrase, would would not be as important. Would not be present in women's prisons. And the women's prisons rely on, you call fictive kinship groups or essentially pretend family structures within within prison. That also yeah. almost seems like it like re- related there. Families are pretty forgiving of of sins of their of their children. Yeah. So women do they they participate in play families or what yeah what I call fictive kinships. Um, but there's huge variation. Some women are never part of a family. Some are members of families their entire period of incarceration. Some move into and out of families. So it's not a sort of constant in the way that, say, gangs are in California today. Uh, but they are sort of built around the sort of nuclear family, and women take on the role of the, the dad or the mom. They adopt kids. They have uh, brothers and sisters. So there, there is a family tree uh, that exists, and people get married, they get divorced, they adopt kids, they disown kids. Uh, so it's not like a gang in the sense of having a strict permanence and hierarchy, 
Um, but it's a source of resources, camaraderie, protection, um, care in an environment that's particularly uncaring. Did you look at any other women's prisons, either that, that you did or didn't write about, and are our family play families like this common in women's prisons all around? Yeah, they're, they're common in many of the studies that I looked at. I focused on California alone because it holds constant a lot of other things that are changing. Uh, there's a famous study in West Virginia of women's prisons uh, that finds play families. And it's a pretty extensive study from, I think, the 1960s. Uh, but there's also sort of one-off studies of women's prisons, often in sort of unnamed Midwestern states. And uh, yeah, but women's play families are not terribly unusual. Did you find something analogous to play families in any of the men's prisons you looked at? Yeah. In the the gay and transgender housing unit of the Los Angeles County Jail, they have families. They talk about families. They form families. Uh, So there is, uh, other than that, though, don't hear family very much um, in, in men's prisons in California. And the gay and transgender unit is also relatively small and from presumably from, uh, you know, at least a, if not direct knowledge of each other from a, a social group, you know, social world, a culture that they have in common and might have some familiarity with each other so that they can police each other in that way more. Yeah. So the, the gay and transgender housing unit in Los Angeles and the county jail is, is very unique. It's, um, you know, frankly, very controversial. Um, in part because there's a test, uh, there's an, uh, an interview, really, that a prisoner has to uh, participate in to gain access to this uh, particular special housing area. And the test is carried out by sort of two older white men, historically, who ask, uh, you know, very probing, very personal, very politically incorrect questions about what, you know the sort of lived experiences of the person who says that they're a homosexual uh, and would like to be housed in this um, more protective housing area. Anyways, as a result of this controversial and in many ways biased selection process, the people who live in the gay and transgender housing unit uh, share a high degree of similarity in terms of worldview, lived experiences, coming from similar areas, similar class backgrounds. Um, and because it is a small community, because there are often pre-prison social networks that existed where people knew each other before incarceration, in fact, there's a high degree of recidivism. So many people who leave that facility return fairly soon thereafter. Uh, one study f- finds that when they arrive, they meet, quote, you know, friendly and familiar faces. Um, and then, yeah, they they have a, a, a similarity, a camaraderie. Um, um, from coming from similar places in the world. And for all of those reasons, I think taken together, um, norms work effectively, families emerge, and there's no need for the hierarchy, the centralization, the dominance of gangs. Backing up for a second to the women's prisons, you you quote some statistics that blew me away that apparently levels of fights and violence are comparable in the women's prisons to the men's prisons. It sounds like maybe the severity of the violence isn't isn't as high, but the frequency of assaults and everything is is as high. Yeah, it's pretty striking. So, I mean, I was really stunned when I first read some of the stuff, which is, you know, so in the United States about 80% of violent crimes uh, are are by men. So the vast majority of violence is driven by men. Um, but in studies of prison violence, 
um, it's often the case that the rates of violence are far more similar between men and women. And some of the studies find that women are more likely to fight than men are while incarcerated. Now, we don't exactly know why that's the case. I think it sort of reveals that you know, what happens in prison need not sort of mirror what happens on the outside. Um, so women don't participate in violence on the outside, but they do inside. They uh, may be members of gangs on the outside, but they aren't on the inside. So I, it's a sort of, it's a striking fact that I think, I think there's more need for investigation to understand what exactly is driving these differential rates of violence. Yeah, I mean, some of it, some of it maybe makes sense when you when you just think about large numbers and that, you know, even if, you know, one in a thousand men are pretty violent and only one in a million women are very violent, you're still talking about the, you know, a small population of the one in a million most aggressive women in this prison. So maybe the, the comparisons are just taking this small sample. It reminded me of a of a. a a uh, suicide statistic is that is that women attempt suicide more frequently than men, but men kill themselves much more frequently mm. than women. So they, you know, successfully use lethal force in the attempt to kill themselves more often than women do. And and in the prison violence, the assaults might be as frequent, but they they you talk about they don't make shanks. You don't really see stabbings or actual attempted or successful murders as often as you might in the men's prison. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a, a good point about the selection effect. Um, the The source that I first learned about this was a sociologist named Diego Gambetta. And his argument was something along the lines of the following, which is that um, people fight um, to establish relative dominance and relative status. And if you if it's clear that you know, you can beat up somebody else, then you don't need to fight because the other person will concede to your uh, greater strength, greater dangerousness. And he argues that men have more experience with violence before incarceration, and they have more prominent signs of their ability to use violence. They may have big muscles, they may have scars exhibiting the willingness to fight in earlier situations, there may be tattoos reflecting acts of violence that have been done. And so he says it's easier for men to know on, on, on site who's more or less likely to win in a fight. And he says that women, by contrast, know less about their own ability to use violence because they're not engaged in violence as often. They don't necessarily have big bulking muscles or scars demonstrating past conflict. And so when there's a conflict, it's not clear who's going to win. And the only way to reveal relative standing, relative ability to fight is through actually fighting and revealing that information. Now, again, I think that's a incredibly interesting hypothesis. It's, it's potentially quite plausible, uh, but that's not a, that's not the explanation necessarily. That's just a hypothesis. He doesn't go through like lots of evidence to test it. Uh, well, he has a whole book on signaling unobservable characteristics. And this looks like a really interesting potential example of that. My impression is, is that that's pretty common throughout the animal kingdom. You know, same species, same species fights don't usually end in death. You have a lot of displays. And as soon as it's clear who the winner is going to be, they back off and they're pretty ritualized. So if you have a species that does this a lot for a living or a sex that does this a lot day to day, then they're going to understand how to buck up and then back down as quickly as they can without having to actually risk injury. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting hypothesis. 
So there's not, a, and maybe it's not relevant to, to your thesis, there's not a ton of discussion of uh, prison rape. And I was wondering if that is, is that a phenomenon that you found that's exaggerated in the popular imagination? Does it, does it play a role in informal, wh- whether it's a violation of norms or does it play any role in uh, internal prisoner governance? So I'm not an expert on sort of prison sexual violence. My understanding is that the best estimates are that it's frequency is something like 3% over the past year or past three years, something like that. So I'm not sure if that's exaggerated relative to the public perception. That's certainly a a lot of of victimization. Um, There are norms in prison um, about rape, and they have a very different view of what consent and rape means in prison relative to, to most of us. Um, it's a very victim-blaming view about sexual victimization, where claims are made about they shouldn't have been in that situation in the first place and in some ways deserve it. Um, there's also stories that prisoners tell each other um, that are actually found throughout many prisons across the United States that are remarkably similar stories. And, you know, one set of authors in a book called The Myth of Prison Rape argue that these are fables that prisoners tell each other about rape in order to teach lessons about how to avoid being put into situations in which victimization um, might happen. Um, Other than that, yeah, no, there's not, I don't, there's not, that doesn't play a very crucial role in the sort of studies that I'm engaging with uh, extensively, although it's obviously uh, a very important issue in the broad range of problems with uh, the American criminal legal system. Something I was curious about with prison gangs is people have this impression of these racially segregated prison gangs as being, you know, fundamentally or ideologically racist in a way that's like very, very clear and ideological. You you kind of paint a picture that a lot of it's just out of convenience that you you need to be able to identify people on site as belonging to pretty much a, a separate tribe. And so you know, you know, who is protecting them, who is accountable for them, and that tribe leadership, the gang leadership knows I'm responsible for this person. How does that work with people who don't fit neatly into racial categories? Like if if a you know a clear a white Jewish person comes into prison, do they end up in a white neo-Nazi gang? How how does how does something like that work? Yeah, well, and, you know, maybe right before answering that, I mean, one of the things here is that a lot of people in California, when they go to prison, they don't actually join a gang. They affiliate with the racial group that is controlled by a gang. So if you were to be incarcerated for a few years in California, you might, you know, hang with your racial or ethnic group. And when you leave, that's the end of it. And if you come back, you'll affiliate with them again. But you're not a sort of full, you know, made member of a prison gang. There's negotiations in, you know, unique or special or borderline cases about, you know, who's someone going to hang with and who's going to be responsible for a particular person. And yeah, I mean, I've heard anecdotes and stories from people saying that they grew up with a, you know, one group, but they're from a different group. And when they're incarcerated, there's like a, a question about who, who they're going to run with, who they're going to hang with. So in, in special cases like that, it, I think it's a matter of uh, communication and the sort of prison politics of deciding, you know, uh, for the purposes of prisoners, who quote officially is he going to is he going to be with? And because this because the prison gangs play a role as a governance structure, 
in a situation like that, is this, is this like a, a debate, a negotiation that's had between like different leadership members of the prison gang? Like this guy's coming in and he, you know, they're, they're resolving a dispute about who he's going to go with. It's probably uh, a less um, formal or official than that. But I think some conversation amongst the sort of informal leaders or shot callers, I mean, that, that wouldn't strike me as a very surprising situation to, to, to happen. What's something I should ask you that I haven't asked you? <laughs> well, that's a good question. It's been pretty wide ranging. Um, nothing really jumps to mind. I, I think we've covered pretty well um, the basic argument. Well, it's a super interesting book. I really enjoyed it. Not not just informative, even if you're not interested in like the academics of it, just from a human in- interest perspective it was really, really fun to read. So thank you so much for writing this book. Are, are you working on anything new right now? I'm doing some academic work on extrajudicial violence in Latin America. Uh, so I'm interested in vigilantism, um, citizen use of severe violence against suspected um, uh, perpetrators of crime. And I think it's a, a big issue. I think it's becoming more important. And as cities grow and megacities uh, emerge across Latin America, I think this problem is getting bad and will get worse. So I basically want to understand you know, why it is that it happens. We've been doing surveys, and it seems that there are honor culture norms, actually, that look much like the norms in prison, where people view it as their right to punish people who have offended them or who have made offenses against them. And it's not the state's right. And so trying to understand the relationship between crime, individual perceptions of harm, and the role of states and state legitimacy and capacity to balance or negotiate um, these phenomenon. And is this, are you working on a journal article or is this just a broad project right now or a book? Uh, I mean, we've got a couple of papers that are, you know, in progress uh, and it would be first a couple of uh, journal articles, we hope. And yeah, there might be a bigger book project there. It depends sort of what we learn uh, in the process of the research, whether, uh, you know, the ideas and the evidence are sufficient to fill a book volume or if they're maybe more properly presented in a relatively concise journal article. And uh, where can people find you if they want to stay up to date with what you're up to? I've got a website, davidscarbeck.com, and I'm on Twitter at David Scarbeck. Awesome. David, thank you so much for talking to me today. Really nice chatting with you. Thank you. That was David Scarbeck, and his book is The Puzzle of Prison Order, Why Life Behind Bars Varies Around the World. Every chapter in that book is informative and thoroughly entertaining. You can find links to it, as well as other topics discussed in today's episode on the show notes. If you're enjoying what I do here, please subscribe to Ideas Having Sex with Chris Kaufman on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, and please rate and review the show. It only takes a second, but it helps out tremendously. I'm Chris Kaufman. Thanks for listening.